So imagine that you could, even at 35, tell people you are on your way to living to, you know, 70, 80 or 90. I have really envisioned this uh, as a revolution in medicine. Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast for curious people about the latest in science and medicine. We have conversations with leading scientists, physicians, and innovators in the spirit of educating and inspiring you to take actions that benefit your health. The future of medicine is here, and our goal is to bring it to you. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, and today I'm pleased to be joined by our guest, Dr. Eric Verdon, and my colleague in New York, Dr. Hadi Halazun, to discuss the state of the science on aging and longevity. Dr. Eric Verdon, a native of Belgium, received his doctorate of medicine from the University of Liege and completed additional clinical and research training at Harvard Medical School. He has held faculty positions at the University of Brussels, the National Institutes of Health, and the Pickauer Institute for Medical Research. Dr. Verdon is also currently a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He joined the Gladstone Institute of Virology and Immunology in 1997, becoming the associate director in 2004. In 2016, Dr. Verdon established his laboratory at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging to study the relationship between aging and the immune system. He is currently the CEO of the Buck Institute. He is in the top 1% of cited scientists and has been recognized for his research with the Glenn Award for Research in Biological Mechanisms of Aging and a senior scholarship from the Ellison Medical Foundation. He has published more than 220 scientific papers and holds more than 15 patents. So today I'm excited to discuss with Eric and my colleague Hadi, the Buck Institute, our current understanding of aging, novel research that is moving the field forward, the science behind what is being promoted, the biggest thing coming down the pipeline, common misconceptions and misinformation, Eric, your favorite scientists and current experiments, and why so many people are pouring billions of dollars into this field, and lastly, how aging research will enter primary care. So Eric, given that longevity in the science of aging is a new frontier, I'd like to weave in a little philosophy with science as we discuss the future, the unknown, and the existential. So to set the table, I think it's worth uh, getting your understanding of the definition of longevity. So, so how would you define longevity just to, to kick this off? First, let me thank you for this opportunity. It's great to be here with you and, and your colleagues. So how do, I, how do I define longevity? I think there's an important distinction to be made here. Uh, many of us or many people, when we talk about longevity, think about the, the total number of years that, that we're living. And that's, that's what we typically refer to as a lifespan. Um, I have a, a, a favorite way of thinking about longevity, which is healthy longevity. And, and we also call this the health span. That is your healthy years of life, uh, which at the end is, is the true meaningful way uh, to look at your longevity. And one of the, I had sort of an epiphany a number of years ago when I was asking, you know, an, a big audience, you know, who wants to live to 150? And, 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 Almost no one raised their hands, and I, I was some, felt somewhat dejected. I thought, you know, no one wants what we're trying to do. And it just dawned on me that, you know, when you talk about living to 150, most people have this really terrible image of someone completely incapacitated and debilitated. And I, I rephrased the question. I asked people, 
who wants to live to 150 in the same shape that you were when you were 50 years old? And the whole room, about 700 people raised their hands in unison. And I think that really points to, you know, the fact that we, you know, we all want to live longer, but we, we want to live longer under, under really well-defined condition that is optimal health uh, and, and functional status equivalent to our better years. Uh, for me, longevity is, is really meaningful in the sense that it, it is accompanied by health. I'd like to hear a little bit about the Buck Institute, uh, how it came to be, when you joined, how it's organized. Maybe you could kind of just go into a brief history for our listeners to understand really what this is. The Buck Institute was founded in 1999 on the heels of a number of key discoveries that really radically changed the way we think about aging. And, and those discoveries were made by, by three main groups, or four actually, uh, who all were able to identify specific mutations in simple model organisms that were able to increase lifespan, and sometimes by a factor of 10. So just imagine uh, up until then, aging was thought as sort of a, a random uh, stochastic process, entropy-driven, just disorder essentially sort of pervading through an organism. And the identification of single point mutation in, in simple organism, and I, I'm thinking about C. elegans, it's a little nematode that we study in the lab, fruit flies, or mice, single point mutations that actually were associated with the gain of extra life was uh, going sort of counter to anything we thought about mutation. We had thought about mutations as mostly deleterious, you know, causing disease, and all of a sudden here's a mutation that actually increases lifespan. So that really forced people to to, to ask a number of key questions about our assumption about aging. And the Buck Institute was founded on the, right after these discoveries. Uh, it was founded uh, with a, a gift from Beryl Buck, who was a, uh, a woman in, in, in Marin County who left her, her fortune with the aim of benefiting the aged in Marin County. And a number of people got together to try to see what, what do we do with, with this leg. And, uh, the idea was came, came about mostly under the leadership of Jack Rowe, who was at the time professor of geriatrics at Harvard Medical School, that maybe we should create the first research institute focused on the biology of aging. Since we have these amazing discoveries that really suggest that we were wrong all along about what aging is, why don't we create an institute to, to study this? And so we opened our doors in 1999. We are funded in, in small part, I should say, by, by this initial gift, about 5% of our budget. Uh, to, today, our annual budget is about $65 million a year. We operate as a not-for-profit research institution. And so we have 22 faculty members. They each have a lab, uh, and they are pursuing basic research on the biology of aging. And so in the last 20 years, we've been really pursuing this question, what is aging? And we've been able, for example, to identify close to 700 different genes that actually all appear to be controlling the aging process. So we've learned two key things that are important for the, for the discussion. One is uh, aging is, is plastic, uh, malleable. Uh, we have dials that are, allow us, once we've identified these genes and these targets, we can dial them up or down using drugs and we can change life expectancy. Uh, and that's the first really key observation. The second one is there is a key link between aging and the development of disease. 
And this is something that everyone knows intuitively. Uh, the idea that if you get old, you get sick. Uh, what was not clear is why. And I think what we have learned is that these pathways that regulate aging not only regulate the aging process, but also regulate um, the development of many of the, the chronic disease of aging. And, and therein lies the, what I think is the incredible potential of this field of research is the idea that by targeting the aging process, we might be targeting these diseases as a group not individually the way we do with medicine. So, you know, I think very clinically and practically, and, and you know, when I sit with a patient, especially with heart disease, I'm thinking, oh, you have diabetes, you have high cholesterol, you have high blood pressure. You know, these are modif what we call modifiable, you know, risk factors for these diseases. And, you know, they're risk factors for many diseases. Can I extrapolate what you're saying as your goal being aging as a modifiable risk factor so at one day i can say even though you're 78 do these things and your risk would be that of someone who is 58 uh, exactly uh this might seem like science fiction uh i i you know if you go back to your harrison textbook of internal medicine uh, if you look at heart disease there is two categories of risk there's the modifiable, as you mentioned, and, and, and we all know what the modifiable risk factors. And then there's another column that has the unmodifiable risk factors. And when I went to medical school, which was a long time ago, the unmodifiable risk factors had two categories, which was age and, and gender. And, and so what I'm telling you today is that age is becoming a modifiable risk factor. Uh, it is something that we can tune. So age actually trumps every other risk factors for most of the chronic diseases of aging, also called sort of non-communicable non non disease. And in, when you look at the, if you, if you plot uh, your risk factor um, as, a f as a function of your age, it's actually, it's a log scale. So the older you get, uh, the faster it increases as a, as a log scale. So, so just since you brought up age as a, as a risk factor, you know, there's been at least in the kind of innovation literature that I've been tracking this kind of chronological age versus biological age. And, and I think that there's a lot of room to understand that. But do you think that like if we could get to some biological age that reflected chronological age in some material way that that, that would change the risk factor of heart disease? Yeah. So here's, here's the way I think about biological age versus chronological age is that each of us has as these two ages. So you have your chronological age. That's the number of years that you have lived. Uh, and, you know, the, the good way to determine this is to look at a calendar. And, and so we all have that age. It is fixed. What's, what the audience might not be familiar with is this idea of a biological age, which is, you know, if we were to take um, 10,000 people of each age, who would you look more like? Would you be a typical 65-year-old or would you actually look more like a 50-year-old? Some members of your audience have gone back to their high school reunion and they're above 60 years old. I can guarantee you that um, they will see, you know, you, you will be astounded. I, I went back to my high school reunion at 60 and I thought, this is amazing. And some people are really aging well. Some people are not aging well, at all, and some are, some others actually have already passed away. So that's a reflection of your biological age, and this is really where the aging field is. We we have identified a number of what we call aging clocks, 
uh, these clocks allow you to determine, okay, you are 60 year old, but how, how, how do you look biologically? Have you aged well or are you aging at an accelerated rate? And what these clocks are telling us when we use them as tools uh, in studies, they are actually able to predict uh, your, your time course of, of your life. You know, one of these clocks is called time of death, TOD. And I haven't taken it because I, I'm not sure I want to know, but this is, this is pretty accurate in determining based on your current state, if you continue to live, you know, the same way and on your genetic status, how long can you expect to live? Unless, of course, there's an accident or something that cannot be predicted. And I think, you know, that there's a lot of power in these clocks. They're, we're very early. Uh, our vision is that they could really become part of medical management, not when you're 65 year old, but hopefully when you're 40 uh, or, or even earlier, when we know the aging process really starts uh, bona fide around 30. We don't age very much between 20 and 30, and at 30, it start, the process starts and really you know, slowly uh, runs its courses throughout life. So imagine that you could, even at 35, tell people you are on your way to living to you know, 70, 80, or 90. I really envisioned this uh, as a revolution in medicine. Right now, we, you know, medicine is incredibly good at, at treating people. Uh, if you have a heart attack, uh, we, we can most of the time you know, save your life and allow you to continue living normally. But I'm always struck by the fact that you can, have, you can be considered a healthy 60-year-old and have your heart attack the year after. And you know, in the past, 50% chance of death. Uh, even today, so you can, can be considered completely healthy and then you have a heart attack. How could this be? Well, these clocks allow you to predict uh, these types of events. And I think it's, it's going to change the way we practice medicine in the future. And just to be clear, these clocks currently exist in a way that you believe if I were to access them, I could use them with fair accuracy? Yes, yes. Uh, they have been, so there are multiple clocks. Uh, they have been, uh, I mean, I have to say they are mostly experimental tools. So they are being used, you know, in research. Uh, they're not deployed to the clinic, although many of them actually can now be purchased, uh, you know, via a variety of vendors. Uh, they all have different strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and frankly, I mean, and it, I would say they're not ready for prime time. Uh, especially unless you want to get some broad indication of where you stand. Uh, I, have I have you know, measured most of these clocks for my own cases. And the interesting thing that I've, I've been consoled to see that they mostly agree with each other. So it's, it's not you know, from different vendors. I, I sent my blood and, and it comes back and it tells me, well, you know, this is what we think your biological age is. Um, now, how do you deploy this in, in the clinic? Uh, at this point, it, it's very hard because, you know, we don't have any approved medicine against aging. Uh, but uh, we can discuss, you know, a little bit later, you know, what are the different ways in which you could modify your aging in, in the future? Uh, that's, that's a whole other, other subject uh, of conversation. Well, well, Eric, you've talked a lot about uh, medications or, or, or pharmaceuticals or drugs or, or these external externalities that like the world produces and we put in our body. I mean, and I know from our earlier conversations that, um, you know, you, you have a strong belief that the things that we can control with respect to these clocks are diet, nutrition, sleep. Uh, personal relationships, like the happiness study out of Harvard, we do know that there are things that are not drugs. How do you think about those factors in, in the context of these clocks? I mean, has there been any research 
on those factors. It's a study just came out, came out of Calico, uh, which is a biotech company in South, South San Francisco involved in aging research, really uh, trying to establish the relative role of, of the environment, uh, lifestyle factors, and and genetic factors. That is, you know, how much of your longevity, what you can hope to live, is predetermined by what you've inherited from your parents versus how much is actually actionable. And the number is actually astounding for me. It's 93% of your longevity is, is determined by lifestyle factors. And they're not only lifestyle, I should call them environmental. That, and that starts the day you were in the womb of your mother to you know, what you eat, how, how much you sleep, your stress level, level of social relationship, and so on. Only 7% is determined by your, the genes that you've inherited from your parents. And that's true in most cases, unless you have a first-degree relative who is a centenarian. In this case, there is a very strong genetic role, and you can expect, in most cases, to live above 90. Uh, so what should you do? And, and this is where the group of, of interventions that you mentioned are coming in. Uh, you know, Nutrition, diet, how you eat, when you eat, what you eat, uh, sleep is a, is a big area, stress and physical activity, social relationships, and so on. And I think a lot of our work right now is trying to really dissect what, what are the molecular mechanisms that link these interventions with uh, you know, aging pathways, and how can we actually uh, advise? Because the bottom line is everyone knows that you should exercise, not eat too much, and, and, and not be stressed and all this, but uh, we also see incredible discrepancy between people in terms of uh, the, their ability to implement these into their daily lives. It's true that much of our society today, sedentarity and all this, are what led us to where we are in part. But the bottom line is that when you look at how most people are aging today, is actually not a pretty picture. And it turns out that if you reach uh, 65 years old, your likelihood that you're carrying one of these chronic diseases of aging, and I'll, I'll just mention what they are, heart attack, stroke, uh, uh, type 2 diabetes, many forms of cancer, macular degeneration, hearing loss, uh, sarcopenia, which is a loss of muscle mass, osteoarthritis, all of this, 80% of people age 65 carry at least one of those. When you reach 70, 70% 70 of people carry two of these conditions. So the way we, you know, we live long until 78 to 80, but we spend about 15 years of our lives afflicted by these conditions. And I, I personally had to watch my father, you know, to struggle with heart from age 55 until 77 when he passed away, uh, suffer with heart attacks, bladder cancer, eventually, you know, lung cancer, bypass, the whole, the whole thing. And I frankly, uh, I, and, and this is a pathway that we see in many people who actually end up, you know, really spending a good fraction of their lives afflicted by these diseases. So even though we live long, I don't think we live well in our old uh, years. Now, the other fact that I think I would like to point is the fact that right now we have an incredible discrepancy between, uh, for example, the strongest predictor of your life expectancy is your zip code, uh, which is a reflection of you know, what people, people call generally the social determinants of health. It turns out that within the US, uh, if you live in Marin County, where, where I live, your life expectancy is 87. If you live in some of the poorest uh, uh, zip codes, uh, 
other places in the country, uh, life, your life expectancy can be as low as 64. So we have a you know, 25 years delta, which is mostly driven by lifestyle. So when we say, you, know, you say that this society led us to live longer, it's actually the people who live the longest are the ones who actually are abiding by many of the things that we believe will make you live longer, which is staying active, not eating too much, having you know rich social relationship, not being too stressed, and so on. And and so I think there's, you know, the the vision that we have right now is given that the fact that in an area like Marin, people can live to 87. I can guarantee you that not everybody is optimized here in terms of their lifestyle. Many people are. There's a lot of I mean, there are a lot of people exercising, eating well, but not everyone. My prediction is that if we were to find a way to optimize everyone. Most people could expect to live to 90, 95 in good health. That's that's the prediction we make. Um, and so, you know, that's an incredibly powerful message. Uh, imagine, you know, this country where people right now can expect to live to 65 in good health uh, based on, on the interventions that we know work and based on epidemiological data. Imagine a society where most people live to 85 to 90 in good health. So just to dig into science here, because I think I think part of your research was cellular senescence. And I think that that's a, that's a term that's floating around in the kind of the geeky literature. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what cellular senescence is, how it came to, to be discovered and, and why it's important in the in the science of longevity. Absolutely. So cellular senescence is, a, at least in our field, is a very specific term that reflects to a program that is built in in every one of your cells that allows it to detect whether the cell is being stressed in a way that is possibly leading to a cancer or to irre irreparable damage. Let's say that one of your cells has a mutation which forces it to start dividing in, in a way that's not controlled and regulated. Again, this is one of the strongest mechanisms that activates senescence. What the senescence program will do is to slow down the cell and and prevent it from continuing to divide. It's essentially, the senescent cell sends an SOS signal to the immune system that signals to the immune system, hey, I'm here, I'm in trouble, come and uh, help to get rid of me. And throughout life, starting at 20, the pr process of senescence occurs and, and these cells get successfully eliminated. Now, what we've learned uh, through the work of, of my colleague here, at uh, Judy Campisi here at the Buck Institute, is who's a pioneer really in the whole field of senescence, is that as your immune system ages itself, it becomes less and less uh, able to get rid of these cells. As you age also, the occurrence of these mutations or, or defect becomes more and more frequent. And the net result of these two things happening together is that the number of your senescent cells in your tissues progressively increases as you age. And as these cells are secreting inflammatory markers, uh, the thinking is that they are responsible for what people have called the uh, inflammaging, this chronic inflammation associated with aging. And you will see this, you know, many of the physicians actually can measure this in patients. You'll see, you know, a, a variety of markers, your CRP level, your D-dimers progressively rise as you age, as a reflection of the senescent cell burden. So out of this came the idea, could we actually get rid of these cells? Uh, first, they proved it in mice. 
if you engineer a mouse in a way that allows you to selectively kill uh, senescent cells, uh, these mice live longer and they're protected against a, a number of chronic disease of aging. So really a remarkable uh, finding. So out of this came the idea of starting a biotech company that would be screening for these senolytics and to um, test them in humans. And uh, so they did this. They were able to identify a number of uh, small molecules that target a vari variety of proteins in, that are unique or uniquely activated or enhanced in senescent cells. And they've been conducting clinical trials in a number of conditions in which we know there is increased senescence. I mean, one of the uh, ones that they've studied is uh, macular degeneration and or, you know, uh, retinitis associated with type, two or type 1 diabetes and so on. So I think there's a lot of excitement for what this might represent in the future. Obviously, it's still early days, but uh, I know that there are a number of clinical trials that are being uh, pursued right now, trying to eradicate these senescent cells with the hope of, of suppressing a disease associated with aging. So, so it's interesting that you talked about macular degeneration, which is a disease associated with aging for sure. But it sounds like that this longevity research is probably going to start in on very specific diseases to see if it can slow down, stop, maybe reverse as a, as a point solution to a specific problem versus, hey, you're a 78-year-old woman and we're going to turn you into a 62-year-old woman in five years. Like I think, I think the disconnect between the, the general public is longevity is going to like either make me younger, the, mountain, the fountain of youth type of concept. Uh, it bumps into the mountain of truth, which is like we have no clue on, on how that, that's going to happen right now, given the biological complexity of things. That's totally accurate. And it's a, it, it's a great point I'm happy to expand on. So what the field is doing right now is really what I just illustrated with senescence is picking unique diseases uh, and, and a format of, of drug approval that has been long tested you know, by the FDA. So instead of reinventing the world, uh, you know, picking, for example, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, heavy burden of senescence, why don't we go and kill senescence in this context? First, it'll be easier to get the trial approved and it will be, you know, uh, it will be the best way to, to, to get the thing, this thing moving. Now, the hope is that as a next step, let's say we, we have a drug that suppresses uh, macular degeneration or uh, eye disease. The reason they picked that particular tissue is, you know, there was some concern, you know, should we give a synolytic at the level of the whole organism? What would happen if we caused uh, a cytokine storm? So the idea of doing this just in the eye or in the knee was to have sort of a localized area where you administer the synolytic. Let's try to see if it works there. But the hope would be if this molecule works in the eye, that it's going to work also in the lung, it's going to work uh, in the knee and so on. So that's, that's the vision. Neil Barzilai is a colleague at Albert Einstein um, who is actually testing the first approach that you mentioned. And, and the way he has uh, thought about doing this is using a drug called metformin, which is a, uh, a drug that's currently used. It's called glucophage. I suspect, you know, your audience, there are people who are on glucophage. It's the first line uh, anti-type 2 diabetes drug. The, the question they're going to ask is, are these normal subjects who are not diabetic protected against the development of the chronic disease of aging? So they're going to be scoring for a new onset heart attack, new onset stroke, new onset uh, dementia, new onset cancer, and so on. 
Now, the key question would then be, uh, you know, let's say this trial works and TAME is documented as being effective against preventing this these types of morbidity. The question would be, you know, to whom do we give it and when? And obviously, you know, this is not something that we're thinking about giving to everybody who, who reaches 25 years old. So uh, I can env envisage a future where if you are at risk of, of heart disease because of family history or, or of another chronic disease of aging, at age 50, uh, your doctor might actually in the future prescribe uh, a metformin as a preventative medicine. There are people uh, all the time asking about, should I take metformin? And you know, my answer kind of to echo what you just said is, well, there's a trial out there to see if there's you know a benefit in people that don't have diabetes. If you just wait five years for this TAME trial and you take it at age 50 instead of 45, you know, are you really losing out that much? I mean, I, I'm a little bit more conservative. I'm a very much an innovator and I like to think about what, what can be done, but I'm also, you know, sometimes doing nothing and waiting for the, the data to come in. Going back to the beginning of this podcast is, do we want the truth and do we want observations and beliefs to match? How do you, how do you address that? Because I'm sure you get asked that all the time. You're making a great case. And I think this is one for, uh, so that's why I'm Frankly, I always abstain from making recommendations because I'm not in a position to make that recommendation. I think what we need to do is to really educate patients on the pluses and the minuses. Uh, you know, if you come from a family where everyone in your family at age 65 has had a heart attack and, and at 68 has had a cancer and your lifestyle is not optimized and you're 50 years old and you feel, you know, I'm, I, I want to put everything on my side. Uh, to try to prevent this, I think a reasonable case can be made for this. If you were to come and see me at, at 30 or at 35 or even at 40, I would say, wait another five years before uh, the TAME trial results comes out because we don't know. The bottom line is, as you both know, as being practicing physicians, there are no drugs that comes without side effects. And for example, you know, I've had a number of 35 or 40 year old coming to me and saying, you know, would you try to, con could you convince my doctor to give me metformin? And the only thing I need to show them is, you know, the effect of metformin on testosterone. Uh, it, it's, it, it can suppress testosterone pretty significantly. And so if you're a 35 year old, that's a completely different question is if you're a 70 year old. So um, it is, these are difficult questions. And I think in, in the best world, they would be uh, sort of discussed by a physician who is aware of the literature on metformin. And I think this is where our field, I think, has not done a good enough job to really provide the information, the data to practicing physician about what metformin does and doesn't do and, and allow them to make, you know, have an informed discussion with their patients as to whether they want to try or not. There's a lot of people making a lot of claims and, and selling a lot of products, uh, you know, being influencers. And there, there seems to be a lot of noise in the system here um, by a few people claiming they've got the fountain of youth or or that death will become optional. I mean, clearly, you're you're a clear eyed scientist with with a, a real perspective on how science works and how complex biological systems are very hard to understand. They're like six dimensional Rubik's cubes. And just because you found one thing like that that may be interesting in the short term, but but maybe not in the long term. H how do you kind of square the circle with with people, you know, making claims and a lot of money without talking about the downside and just promoting the upside? Uh, it, it, it's it's been a problem for us. Uh, there are a number 
of, of statements that have been made that I think should not be part of the scientific discourse. Number one, I'll just deal with immortality. Uh, you know, some, you know, curing death or really eliminating, you know, death. Uh, that, that's not part of the equation. I think, I, I don't know one reasonable scientist who thinks that we are or will ever be close to this. Uh, and I think so. I, for me, this, this term belongs to the church. And I, I'm not saying this in a pejorative way. You want to believe in immortality, you know, go to church. But do not talk to do not do not talk to scientists. And I, you know, and, and if you believe in immortality uh, after death, I mean, I'm totally fine with this. But this is not should not be part of the scientific discourse. Uh, number two, amazing things have been done in the laboratory. Uh, so we can you can you know double lifespan of mice uh, using interventions. We can increase lifespan of the small work worm by a factor ten. And so this has led some of some of my colleagues uh, to, to claim to make you know what I what I call I, I think are outlandish claims that you know oh we're going to increase we're all going to live to a thousand years old uh, well you know there, there's some sobering facts that I think point to the fact that this is going to be very difficult you know one estimates that to date there have been a hundred billion people uh, humans living on the earth and the oldest the hundred billion that's the total weight of humanity. Uh, and at least based on what we've been able to measure, no one's ever lived longer than 122. This is a French woman called Jeanne Calment, and even her, her data is questionable. There's been some question as to whether this was actually an insurance fraud. Are you, are you saying the woman lied about her age? No, she apparently it was her daughter. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and this was an insurance fraud. The other... You know, the second longest lived person has lived 118, and then two or three to 117, and then 115, quite a few. So, you know, just simply based on, on the genetics and on lifestyle factor, you would have imagined that, you know, if, if we could live to 150 even, that one person would have been able to do this. And the fact that we see this hard limit is, uh, to me, is indicative of where maximum lifespan of humans uh, is likely to lie, around 115. Now, some of my colleagues will argue, well, uh, you're not taking into account the dramatic acceleration of research and the fact that uh, we have novel way of doing genetic engineering and so on. And I, I say, you know, humbly, yes, there's a part of me that doesn't know what we're going to be able to do in the future. I'm just trying to tell you what I think we can do now and, and work on today. Uh, what will happen 50 years from now, uh, no one can predict. They cannot, and I cannot. And as a scientist, I think I prefer to take a stance, which is not to say that this is this is never going to happen. We're not going to live to 150. But there is nothing today that allows me to say that we're going to be able to do this. And, and in some way, it detracts from the amazing work that we can do now. Imagine a world where everybody would live to 95 in good health, in great health. I mean, the societal impact of such a discovery would be earth-shattering uh, in terms of social security. I think it's been I, I think, and literally, it'd be earth-shattering because I don't think the planet can, can accommodate everyone living that way. That's another significant problem. Is that you know we have doubled our lifespan in the last hundred years, and that's already pretty amazing. In 1850. We were living to 37 on average. Uh, we're now at 77, 80. Uh, 
remarkable uh, changes. So we're gaining, you know, two years of extra life every decade. Imagine that we continue doing this uh, by 2100, we will all live to 98 on average. So to me, these are the things that we're working on today. Uh, I cannot predict the future. And I think as scientists, we should err somewhat, we should be you know, silently optimistic and ambitious, but we should be publicly uh, conservative. You know, I always tell people, you know, under promise and over deliver, and we'll see what happens in the future. Well, this field is definitely a bright spot in medicine, and we're excited to continue to follow you and the Buck Institute. And uh, we'll make sure that uh, people can know where to find you, how to follow you, learn more about what your research is. And, and I have a funny feeling we'll be seeing you back on our podcast, Inside Medicine, in the near future. Thank you very much, Dr. Verdon. Anytime, guys. It was great to spend some time with you. Thank you for listening to Inside Medicine, a private medical production. We hope to have inspired you to think a bit differently about your health and the healthcare system. Until next time.